Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the I Can Do podcast with Benjamin Lee. We're here to talk about tips and strategies to have an I Can Do mindset when it comes to faith, family, fitness, and food. Let's go. Here's your host, Benjamin Lee. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Can Do. I am Benjamin Lee. I hope and pray all is well with you. Today we have another special guest on the podcast, Dr. Susan Kleiner. Dr. Sue is a titan in sports nutrition. Her seminal research on male and female bodybuilders launched the study of the nutritional needs of muscle building, power, and strength. She is the owner of the internationally recognized consulting firm, High Performance Nutrition. Dr. Sue is a world-renowned expert and scientist in the sports nutrition product industry and the author of seven books, including her bestseller, The New Power Eating. Dr. Sue has consulted with pro athletes and teams, Olympians and elite athletes in countless sports. She is co-founder and fellow of the International Society of Sports Nutrition and a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, a member of the American College of Sports Medicine, and the National Strength and Conditioning Association. As an athletic woman herself, Dr. Sue knows that athletes deserve proven lifestyle guidance and products to conquer their dreams. This was a real treat for me to be able to talk to Dr. Kleiner, and I really appreciated her time, and I am confident that you will be able to take a great deal out of this conversation that we had. So I hope you enjoy the show. Here we go. Dr. Sue, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I really appreciate your time. I know you have a lot going on, and thank you so much for being here. Um, I reached out to you a couple of months ago, and I didn't think initially we'd be talking like this, but I'm (laughs) happy you accepted my invitation, and your book, Power Eating, has had a big impact on me, and I know we're going to talk a lot about that, I'm sure. I want to begin, actually, with some of the volunteer work that you do. I know on your website, you talk a lot about your passion for what you're doing in Vietnam. And I wanted to see if you could just kind of give us some details about that and how all that got started. Well, um, it's funny. Um, First of all, you know, if any of my Vietnamese family (laughs) sees this, my heart is with you in Vietnam. Yeah. they are, by the way, doing um, one of the best jobs of all countries in the whole world of controlling this pandemic wow. within their borders. So how this got started, my husband, as I had mentioned to you before we started rolling here, is a periodontist, and he's quite involved in the academic program at the University of Washington. He's a clinical periodontist. He has his own practice, but he has volunteered his time always on Wednesdays to teach uh, the graduate program. Um, and so there was this, uh, there's a group here, it's out of uh, the Pacific Northwest called Medical Education Exchange Team, MEET, 
And they invited him to come and teach at the um, Kanto University of Medicine and Pharmacy. Uh, and I, when he was talking about going, I said, well, wait a minute. Don't they need someone to teach nutrition? You're not going to Vietnam without me. <laughs> so, so off we both went. In fact, they they didn't they did need someone to teach nutrition, but they didn't even know to ask for it. There at that time, this is about five or six years ago now, there there is no profession of dietetics in Vietnam. And so teaching nutrition academically is not something that they have. So when I said, I have a PhD in nutrition and I would love to come and teach medical students, it was a whole new concept to them. And so off I went and little did I know how connected I would feel so immediately. So I am actually in many ways back to my clinical dietetics roots, trying to help um, medical students. And so this is not like what we call uh, jungle medicine, where you go in, you treat 50 people and you leave. And next year you come back and you treat another 50 people with the same stuff and you leave. You're not changing the medical infrastructure, but we are teaching faculty and students at the medical school to change the curriculum, to incorporate, regardless of what specialty it is, into practice that actually changes what's happening out in the community. And so this is now guiding um, medical students how to incorporate nutrition into their practices, whether it's diabetic patients, hypertensive patients, um, uh, surgical patients in the hospital. And and shockingly enough, the um, metabolic syndrome is exploding in Vietnam as we have watched it happened in China. It is moving across Asia as their economies are opened, similar to China, and the and they become more capitalist, even though they are a communist country, and uh, their economy is is a more capitalist style. And the first businesses that come in is American fast food. And that becomes the place you want to be and be seen, right? And so young people are changing their diets from one of the healthiest cuisines in the world to what we've done here to ourselves. And there's a dramatic shift in the health and well-being of the people of Vietnam. I feel some personal responsibility as an American Um, because it is our influence that is being exported around the world. And I understand nutrition and what we can call lifestyle medicine. And so, uh, and I was a child of the Vietnam era, the Vietnam War era, which they call the American War, which everyone should be aware of, Mm -hmm. just for perspective. And, And so all of that sense of, of connectedness, has made it um, an incredible opportunity to go and share and learn uh, and, and, and get to know a people who are incredibly gracious, yeah. um, ingenious, uh, no surprise that we couldn't win that one, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, that, and, and, and forgiving, tremendously forgiving. So 
I have, it, it has, it's one of the great things and I miss it terribly right now. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that. When, when you did have the last opportunity to go over there, how long is that teaching? Is it for a week? Is it for a month? What does that look like? So, so our, our sort of window of leaving the U.S. and returning based on only our volunteer, and this is 100% volunteer. We pay our own way. We pay our own expenses. Um, and it is the most well-funded experience <laughs> paid back in, in spades. Um, yeah. uh, but so it's 10 days really door to door, but, uh, and the teaching time is one week that is packed, 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 uh, you know, early morning to late evening, yeah. uh, with the students and then, uh, and the faculty. And then, uh, my husband and I have fortunate to be able to add on, another five days and we choose one place to go. And so we don't try and we believe we will return to Vietnam year after year after year. And so we choose one place and see it as well as we can for about five days. And then we come home. Very nice. Well, you mentioned a little bit about their uh, cuisine and I talked to you about going to Africa in 2014 and I had the opportunity to go to Israel in 2018. So it's always interesting going to different places and really experiencing the the culture and the food, which I really love, and what this podcast is a lot about. What makes their diet there? You talked about how these fast food restaurants are unfortunately having a negative impact. What's what's so good about their diet there? I'm not really too familiar with it. So the Vietnamese diet is absolutely fresh, local ingredients, very plant rich. Um, it is not necessarily vegetarian, but it is very plant rich. And as I said, often picked from the fields that morning or the evening before they have a, a very, very busy food transportation system. And as I said, it's local. So they are bringing things in, uh, even in one family Um, where part of the family may be the street food vendor or the restaurant in the urban setting in the city, they may have a plot, you know, a farming square or two outside the city where other parts of the family live. They're very connected. Um, It may be, you know, extended family by um, aunts and uncles, or it may be uh, children who are grown and, and, and people are living in two different places, taking care of their role in the business of farming and serving and then, and then bringing in. And so, uh, or if they don't have their own places to grow, they are going to the market at three o'clock in the morning and getting fresh produce for for their production that day. Uh, and for people in their own homes, the same as they're, as they're making their own food, they are going to the markets just about every day, sometimes twice a day. Um, and markets are that local that you can, you walk to the market, you don't have to take a bus. You, you can get to your local, um, market. Everything looks like an enormous farmer's market and, and even the small little roadside markets are abundant and they know timing. 
They know, for instance, uh, street food has become a passion. And I have to say, we have, we have learned how to eat well and never get sick so far. Um, <laughs> and you, you talk to people and you learn. And so there are certain vendors that you only see early in the morning, or there are vendors that uh, street food that you will only see in the evening. And that's because they have no refrigeration. Mm -hmm. And so they make enough for the customer base that they know they're going to have for the, the hours that they're open, maybe from six in the morning until 10. And that's an early morning sort of breakfast soup usually and, and you won't find them at noon. It's too warm. It's gotten too hot. They, they can't keep their food fresh. And so they're gone by 10. And then someone else will open, say, from, you know, 11 to 1 or 2. And now it's getting too hot again. And they make just enough. And then they close down. And then there is night market or evening. So... Uh, it's more evening food, but these places are not open all day long, like we think of. And, and because of the way they operate, they have to start preparing for tomorrow, the minute they close. And so it takes them, whether they're chopping or whatever they're doing, now they go shopping for the next day. That's the cycle, right? You can't just be open all day and be ready to open tomorrow morning. It's not a fast food stand where you've got a whole production line of people and stuff in the freezer. That is um, I think that's the key. Yeah, that what stood out to me there, what you just said, time, just the amount of time. Then you compare that to here in America and fast food. And to me, that just sounds like that's the there's there's the difference, right? Where you have this freshness, uh, you have this preparation, and that's just uh, that's pretty fascinating to hear. Uh, just how much time goes into it. And it's interesting, too, how the quarantine has forced more people to, I think, appreciate that more, where you have more time, you know, to actually cook instead of being so busy where we rush out and get more food. I, I agree. And, and, and the interest in food is there because they're preparing it in all generations. My young medical students or nursing students that I'm teaching, and so they're <clears throat> they, you know, they start, so medical school is six years, um, and that is their undergraduate and medical degree put together. They have sort of three years of basic sciences and English, and then they have three years of their clinical medical side. And, uh, and so they start medical school at 18. So they're very young, right? Yet, if I ask them what the ingredients are, for a dish they know yeah. they their food is so much a part of their culture it would be as if and today I don't even know I mean I don't know what pe young people know anymore but for <laughs> me when I was young if a young person didn't know the pledge of allegiance it would yeah. be like you know, our, our immigrants knew the, it was the first thing they learned is the Pledge of Allegiance, right? I mean, everyone knows the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, in Vietnam, everyone knows what's in their food, how, what the ingredients are. They can describe the things that I'm saying, what is this? I've never seen this before. So, so that deep cultural connection to their cuisine is part of their personal identity. And 
and they are going to lose that. Mm. It is the loss is so deep and so wide. If they lose their connection to their own food, um, and I would say the same has happened here. We have ha- we see the illness in society as we've become more and more disconnected from our our food, our cultural values, our uh, how food affects us physically and mentally. The feeding of a family, what that does, and the impact of not having a family meal yeah. has an impact on the behavior of children. I mean, it is enormous, yeah. and. And I am watching it in real time in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And it is, and I am, I am doing my best <laughs> to try and raise, you know, raise the volume on, on calling for it to slow down. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly appreciate that. And let me ask you a question about children um, with food. How do we make that connection or how do we help our children? I have a nine-year-old. I know you have uh, children as well. So how do we get them, I don't know what the word is, or term passionate, interested, where they take really great value and consideration into, into what they're eating? So my girls are fortunately um, grown women at 28 and 23 right now, but, but, my connection that I taught them was to never lose, because we're born with it, your ability to recognize how food makes you feel. Um, we have to teach children to disconnect from what they're doing and how it makes them feel. Humans, like all animals, are instinctual in knowing that certain things are dangerous, certain things make us feel bad, we want to stay away from them, certain things make us feel good. Certainly we have things in, as humans available that make us good, that are ba- feel good for a brief period of time, but can be damaging to us. But uh, in, the, in the big picture, we are in somewhat instinctually connected to what we do, what we put in, who we surround ourselves with, all of that. And society teaches us to disconnect from that, right? You're too tired, take a pill. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you don't, you're, you, you're not feeling good. Um, things, you know, just work harder, right? Whatever, whatever it is, ignore it. And keep going, uh, and so you know you're, you're. As I said, you're 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 unhappy with your spouse. Put your head down and and ignore it. Whatever it is, don't pay attention. And and so in my house, it was the opposite. It was pay attention. Yeah. Listen to your body. Listen to what's happening. Understand and and in this case understand how food makes you feel and pay attention even over days of time while you know a donut may make you feel really good really (laughs) fast if there's a box of them and you eat that whole box over a day or two you're gonna know you feel like crap yeah Um, yeah remember 
what it was that you did that made you feel like that. And the reason you feel bad is because a little bit of sugar in a short period of time increases our ability to have the amino acid tryptophan cross the blood-brain barrier. And tryptophan is an amino acid that is a building block for serotonin, the neurotransmitter in our brain that makes us feel good, makes us stay happy, raises our mood state, keeps us alert during the day. Um, But when you eat a lot of sugar consistently over a period of time, your blood sugar starts to rise and fall and rise and fall, and that becomes a stress on your body. Your body does not like peaks and valleys in your blood sugar, and your body recognizes that as incoming stress and internal stress, stress hormones are produced. You start to break down the proteins in your body because those stress hormones are telling your body, you've got a tiger on your tail, get moving. And so if you need to get moving fast, just like if you need to get out of the blocks in a race really fast, everything gets pushed into your bloodstream so it's available. And that actually decreases over time your ability to keep your serotonin levels elevated. And those start to do this too. And so you, and there's a whole host of other things that go on. In the midst of that, you start to feel bad very shortly. Over a long haul, other physiological things happen. But within a week or two, this will happen. And that's what we called years ago, sugar blues. The, The needing to keep eating more and more sugar to feel better. Normal, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that that kind of sounds like the book that you that you wrote, uh, the Good Mood Diet, and just the impact of of foods, and just understanding how you know these subtle changes can make a big difference. What you just said was interesting too. In a week or two, I mean, it doesn't have to be that long. But then, on the other hand, if you decide to to shift and to change how you're eating, you can begin to have these immediate effects as well. Correct. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I have had clients, I've, you know, had the great fortune in my career to work with some very optimistic, very highly motivated people. Yet, as you said, these tiny changes, and when I would work with them often, you keep as much the same as you possibly can. And this is kind of, kind of a lesson for everyone, even for a a dietitian who's got the chops that I have, mm-hmm. the best way to help people stick to changes is to keep as much the same as possible that they're doing. Don't change your whole diet. You're never going to do that. It's way too hard. Yeah. The things that are, that, are, that are within the boundaries of, yeah, these are good things, don't switch those around. Keep those the same. And tweak the things kind of around the edges. Well, with these clients, very often, there might be a handful of tweaks that that help support what I call the neurobiology of food. How we use food in combinations to help elevate our mental energy, our mood, or our ability to cope with stress, to rest and relax and sleep, whatever those cope with anxiety, those things, we can do small things with food that if they've 
not been there all along, they actually become quite noticeable. And I love it when I get the call that says in a week, oh my God, Doc, I have never felt so good in my life. What did you do to my diet? (laughs) And that is a better call. That's a call that's going to stick versus Oh, everybody, I've lost weight. Everyone, you know, I'm looking this way. Those are external things. Yeah. My goal is understanding it's all about how you feel. It's not about what you weigh. If you feel good, if you stick with your plan, and you will because you recognize even when you went off of it, you go back to it because you felt so good. Mm-hmm. If you need to lose weight, you will. Yeah, and that that is so good, too, because... I kind of have a mindset of little by little where, and I want to ask you really two questions here. One, how do you help the person where you're telling them, okay, look, we're just going to make some subtle changes here, but they're so excited. They're so fired up and said, no, we're just going to do everything all at once. And you know that in about a couple of weeks or a month, they're just going to crash and burn. And then you mentioned already, but feel free to elaborate one of the things I try to tell people with the scale is that, and I've done talks before life beyond the scale or beyond the scale. We get so, I had two scales a few years ago. My wife never got on any of them. It was only me where I was just kind of infatuated with the number, like making sure that this number and thankfully I was able to figure out with some help from other people as well. There's so many other ways to measure success So how do you help the person who is just so anxious and they just want to get everything done fast? And then how do you help that person who has that, I call it a friend of mine said that she was a scaleaholic. And and I I actually like that. It's funny, but it's like, it's true because people will weigh three or four times a day. How do you, how do you help those people? Well, so the first thing is um, I, I ask them why, Yeah. why, why do you do that? What is that giving you? Um, What do you think that's telling you? Mm. There is a technique called motivational interviewing. Um, I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar with it, but it is a critically important style of working with anybody. It could be an employee that you manage. It can be a client that you're working with. It can be your children, your spouse, our partner, your parents, <laughs> that, that managing up concept, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Motiva- motivational interviewing is guiding the person to their own, to understanding what is happening with them, having them tell you why they're there, <laughs> and, and, and they participate. In fact, they are the initiator of the solutions. So figuring out what is the problem, mm-hmm. it's not always, it's not always what you think it may be, mm. right? I get people who come in, to, who come to me, it seems obvious, right? They're coming for their diet. That's why else would you come to a dietitian? Yeah. But why are you really here if you've told me you've gone gone on and off diets forever? Well, then you know how to find a diet and go on it. You don't need me for that. Why are you here? Why are you here Mm -hmm. too? Why are you here with me? 
instead of choosing another book or online program. Why are you really here? What are your real obstacles? I hear you saying X. What happens when, you know, all of, all of that. And then what are the, what do you want, what do you want to accomplish? What are your goals? Your goal, your goals are not my goals. Mm -hmm. They need to be your goals. Yeah. And, and then how do we begin and what steps are possible? We don't need to be at the end goal. We need to figure out what you're going, what you can do, what you feel like you can do tomorrow. Yeah. And so actually I have this book right here. Okay. It's quite good. There's other ones. Nice. Uh, this one is nutrition and fitness and, and it's a real step-by-step -step and role-playing. And you really need to role-play this because it's, it's a technique that today is taught in behavioral therapy, but certainly isn't taught to personal trainers. Yeah. Uh, unless you've done quite a bit of additional continuing education. So okay. that's the first step. Can you, Why can you, can you, are you here? Oh, yeah. So it's mo Motivational Interviewing in Nutrition and Fitness by Dawn Clifford and Laura Curtis. Uh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, that should be it. Published by the Guilford Press. And it was published in a copyright is 2016. So helping people to understand motivate with the motivational interview and helping them really to get to that point where they can have that self-awareness of understanding themselves even better, where you're guiding them so they can, it's like the aha moment, like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Where the diet or the, you know, figuring out a meal plan is not always that issue because there's so much information out there anyway but sometimes there can be some underlying, some underlying things that they need to process or work through. Right. For instance, I have worked with airplane pilots, right, who fly all night, uh, you know, uh, over the Pacific. And so they say to me, well, you know, I'm not home sitting at my kitchen table <laughs> to eat the three squares and the two snacks that all these diets say that I need to eat. So I, I'm just, I'm dead in the water, you know, Oh, that's a bad thing to say. For <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you know, I'm never going to be able to follow a diet. Mm -hmm. And so the conversation is, well, when, tell me about your day. Yeah. When do you eat? What, you know, and, and, and what are the obstacles? What are the options? Can you, you know, well, you know, I've seen guys coming on with a cooler, but, you know, I don't want to do that because it takes up space or whatever. Well, so, okay. Um, why does that cooler make you feel that way? Why does, you know, just starting to find out and realize that just because you can't sit at your kitchen table every day, which I'll, except for during pandemic times, <laughs> none of us do. Yeah. How can we still eat well? How can we figure out what our options are? And, and when are we hungry? And when do we need to eat? And what is the right amount of fuel for a person who's 
sitting in an airplane for 12 hours, you know, all of those hydration things, all those things you there, there, I worked with a person who was, uh, so I'm in, I'm in Seattle and we're a port and in those great big, huge unloaders at the port, at least at this time, I don't know if it's true today, when they would go up in the cabin of that great big unloader way up high, there's no bathroom up there, and they're not allowed to come down for four hours. It was something like that, four or eight hours. Once they're up there, their union, they're, and they're, they're on a clock, the, the, the management, you don't come down because it stops the whole system for you to come down to go to the bathroom. So you need to be dehydrated up there unless you can figure out other options. Well, I was working with a woman, which was a rare person at that time anyway. She says the dudes can, you know, they can pee into a Coke bottle, but I can't, or, or their big gulp, you know, they drink it, then they pee in it. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. Well, so we found solutions for her, you know, it just, it, but, but until you really let people talk to you, why are you dehydrating yourself? And you just say, well, you can't do that. You need to drink this much X times, whatever. And this is, and this is what you need. That's not, they go away and it's like, well, I can't do that. And so, so, so this is absolutely essential. And they're, coming up with a solution versus what we know doesn't work, which is handing somebody a piece of paper, which is essentially what we have been doing. Maybe we're being a little fancier about it. Maybe we're doing online programming. You're not doing anything different than the old fashioned hand someone a diet and send them out the door. That's all you're doing. It is not a solution for a long period of time. And my goal is to have my patients never see me again, frankly. Yeah. Right? I want them to be a success. So, so starting with motivational interviewing, back to the scale. So, so asking, as I said, why do you do that? And then having a little bit of stories, personal experience, whatever. The big thing, the first thing to say is, you know, that all the number on a scale represents is your body's relationship to gravity. (laughs) Yeah. That's all that number represents. It doesn't say anything about what's going on inside your body. Yeah. And so my personal experience, I don't know how everybody else has been doing, but my personal experience over this pandemic is that I was really good with my exercise for about four weeks. And I'm a group, I go to group exercise. I have, Uh, you know, a running group that I go, I do all kinds of stuff. I am a social exerciser. Yeah. I love going to the gym and lifting and talking Mm -hmm. to everybody and having people ask me questions and we're, you know, shucking and jiving. We're having a good time. Right. (laughs) And, and, and all of that just ended. And so I did my stuff at home. I have my bicycle on a trainer at home. I have some weights and that lasted about three weeks and then that kind of ended. And so I have to say, I went about probably 16 weeks um, in, I hadn't gained or lost any weight on the scale. And I can tell you my body doesn't look anything the same. Mm. I lost probably four pounds of muscle and put on four pounds of fat. Yeah. And And so what does the scale tell me? 
Oh, you're doing great. Yep. <laughs> you haven't gained an ounce. You're yeah. perfect. Yeah. But I'm not. And so it's a false sense of security mm-hmm. in that situation. In other situations, data show that people who are trying to control their body weight, there is a certain amount of getting on a scale for the right person that helps them. Yeah. And it keeps them in reality rather than waiting until they've gained 10 pounds and nothing fits them anymore. And they go, Oh man, I must be eating too much. And so, Mm -hmm. so there's, again, it's understanding the person that you're talking to being aware of the techniques out there to talk to people. Nothing is an absolute. We are talking with individuals. So maybe two scales is a little over the top. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was way too much. And, you know, I I threw them away and uh, I ended up, um, I ended up doing really well. Um, Thankfully, you know, I had some, I had some coaching and uh, I was actually getting coaching from uh, uh, Bill Phillips who wrote the book. um, Oh yeah. And, uh, and I got to go to his camp the following year. So that's, I did a talk there called beyond the scale and it was almost, it was, it was freeing to some degree because I was just so infatuated with it. And so I started measuring more by uh, my clothes and mm-hmm. um, started measuring my wins and successes. Like, okay, did I work out? Yes, I worked out. Did I, did I hit a hundred ounces of water? Yes, I did that. Did I take my supplements? So it just kind of got ingrained in me now where, um, uh, I know I picked up some weight too, I think, uh, in the quarantine, but I started, you know, I had this, uh, I called it my fat suit. It was this brown suit. I had it for years. I can't remember when I bought it and I left it in Illinois. That's where I'm from. And years ago, uh, I was just gaining weight. I said, okay, I gotta go. I gotta go get the brown suit. And I couldn't fit into the brown suit. So the brown suit was oh, supposed to be like wow. the fat suit and I couldn't fit into that. So I was like, Oh no. So, uh, that year I started in August with him and then like by October, you know, I was back into it and felt really good. You know, a lot of muscle and lost uh, a good amount of fat. And, um, uh, one of the guys I was preaching with, he had, he had mentioned, he said, you know, Ben's been wearing this Brown suit quite a bit. Let's see if he will be in it after Thanksgiving. Cause it was November. So I had the last word. So I got up and I said, okay, here's what I want to do. I'm just going to wear this every Wednesday and Sunday when I'm here at the building, like for the rest of the year. So it came like this whole ordeal type thing. And I I still have the brown suit and uh, I got a special day coming up next week. So I'm going to, I think I'm going to wear it this weekend. So that's kind of been some things for me. Can I still fit into certain things? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm focusing on as well, uh, waist size. Uh, I read an article, I can't remember the name of it, but, um, looking at how your waist size can actually be a, a predictor, you know, mm-hmm. for, for good health and for men being 35 inches or smaller. Mm-hmm. So that's another way that, that, you know, you can measure certain things. So, but um, what you mentioned too hit me too, because I think sometimes I can still, I still may not always want to face reality, you know, when it comes to like where I may be, because I'm just not getting on the scale that much, uh, but I can tell, okay, I need to, I need to cut back uh, or I need to, to switch it up a bit. You talk, but just to but, be careful, though, yeah. because if you're doing a lot of weightlifting and yeah. you're eating properly and you're well hydrated, so my, you know, your weight will be higher. Yeah. And this is what I'm saying. But it's not a relationship to anything other than gravity. It's not telling you, 
you've actually lost fat and you've gained muscle. You are way healthier. You are fully fueled and fully hydrated. All of that weighs something. Um, And it's good stuff. In fact, when my clients come, even those who want to get lean, Mm -hmm. sculpt their bodies, um, I say in your first two weeks, don't get on the scale. And in fact, if you do, don't freak out because if you're doing everything I'm telling you to do and that we've discussed and you've agreed to that can work for you, you will weigh more. Mm. And, and that is the fallacy of, of, of letting the scale lead you rather than, as you said, checking the box, the pat on the back. I did the behavior. I did the thing that I know that's good for me, that makes me feel good. Stick with those things. The scale is a secondary tool. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Thank you for that. I, I want to go back real quickly here and I've I got a, a lot of questions and we may not be able to get to them, but I want to go back to 1991 and you correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's when you were with the Browns and you had the opportunity to work with uh, Bill Belichick. And were you the first to to have that position as a sports nutritionist? And how did that come about? Did he create it? Did you create it? Walk us through that. Uh, I found that very interesting when I when I learned that about you. So I'm just curious to to learn more. So um, Bill Belichick's first head coaching job was at the Cleveland Browns. Mm-hmm. And he had worked um, in New England with a, a, a one of the original sports nutritionists. She was very part-time. She was a contracting uh, a nutritionist with the team. And he learned a lot from her. She um, then, you know, stayed where she was. He came to Cleveland and, you know, and he's a, you know, you can say what you want about Bill Belichick and there's probably a lot to say. Uh, Brilliant. And, and his attention to detail, I think has no end. Um, And part of his contract with the Browns was that he have a sports nutritionist to work with. Mm. And so he came to the Browns and this was the original Cleveland Browns, mind you, this is before they left in the middle of the night. <laughs> I tailed it out of there <laughs> and went to, where did they was go it Baltimore? Baltimore. I think Baltimore. it was Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. So I had come back to Cleveland. My doctoral research was, my degree was from Case Western Reserve University, but the work was done in sports medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. And the Cleveland Clinic had the sports medicine contract with the Cleveland Browns. Uh And so when the Browns asked the docs, um, I had come back to Cleveland. I had been gone. I had been on faculty at Duke University. I was back in Cleveland kind of, you know, my husband and I were leapfrogging each other in our, in our academic pursuits. And so we were back in Cleveland and the clinic said, the only person for you to work with is Dr. Susan Kleiner. And so I got the call and I thought it was what we called in those days, a phony phone call. Right? <laughs> I, I was like, cause all my friends knew I didn't want to come back to Cleveland. Yeah. And, and there was no academic position. I didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, it was the right thing for my husband at that time. And so we came back to Cleveland and I get this, it's the old fashioned um, uh, voice recorder, you know, (laughs) with a a message (laughs) that this is the strength and conditioning coach from the Browns. And 
we'd like you to call. And I'm thinking, yeah, who is this? And I call back going, who is this? You know, and of course it was the real deal. Well, anyway, that opportunity was a full time, full blown nutrition program with the Cleveland Browns. And it was the first, uh, there had never been, um, a full-blown nutrition, full-time nutrition program in the NFL. And so that was the opportunity. And uh, I worked very closely with Coach Belichick and his guidance. Sometimes we butted heads. Sometimes the outcome that he directed blew up. Sometimes mine didn't work so well because we were creating something brand new that never existed before. And these were really the early days of, of sports nutrition on a professional team scale in anything there, there wasn't anything. What was changing was drug use in sports. So now we had a drug testing program, which we had never had before. And that's what allowed for the rise of sports nutrition. I had written an article on nutritional alternatives to anabolic steroids because diet and anabolic steroids in competitive male bodybuilders was my doctoral research. And yeah. so, so it kind of thrust me into this world that I was fascinated with strength and power, diet and muscle building. And, um, and so it just positioned me perfectly for this role. And it was, it was an awesome learning experience. Yeah, that's really cool. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I know you've been able to work with so many different athletes and there was a quote in your, in your book here and I, uh, the new power eating. And I think I misquoted it at the beginning. I just said power eating, but this is the updated edition, the new power, right, eating. the clever new uh, title, the new yeah. power eating. <laughs> Pat Riley on one of the pages you had talked about when you worked with him, he said that 50% of athletic performance is a result of mental focus. And um, it just seems like, you know, if we can get the food element down, there's so much focus is a part of that, right? Just with staying on the right track, staying on course. And I know you've touched on that. Do you have any other tips or strategies when it comes to just staying focused with what we're consuming and, and staying on the right track? I think it's sort of, oh, you had touched on it as well. Um, the wins should be small steps. You know, keep, yes, keep your eye on the ball. Um, Don't get distracted. And the ball goes a long way. But we know that in order to hit the ball, let's say baseball or golf or tennis, soccer, you've got to maintain your focus, not just to kick it, but the entire follow through of the swing whatever it is, for it to keep going in the direction that you want it to go, right? If you don't follow through on on your, when you impact with the ball, it will not go in the direction that you want it to go. And that's how I think about feeding yourself, that, that you make a decision, I want to do this, but the follow through moment to moment, staying centered and focused on where you want that ball to go is critically important. You may be sitting around feeling really bummed right now. 
you can't go anywhere, you can't do anything, you, you're, you're, you're very restricted, and the choices that you have are to blow up your diet, right? I just don't care. I, there's a bag of chips in the, in the <laughs> pantry, and, and I'm just going to open the whole bag and sit in front of the tube and, and eat it. Yeah. Stop for a second. Yeah. Where's, where is your follow-through? And in fact, you can probably eat some chips. Just please put them in a bowl. Mm. Close up the bag, put a rubber band around it, put someone else's name on it if you have to. But, but take, know that I can enjoy, I'm craving the salt, I'm craving the, the, the crisp, I'm missing that. Go for it. You know that it, you can have a small bowl. That may be all you need or ice cream or whatever it is. Yeah. Portion it out mm-hmm. so that you not only impact with the ball, but you follow through. Follow and so through. that doesn't mean de- deprivation and restriction. It means just sticking with a plan. <laughs> and so yeah. number one, you have a plan. Yeah. And then remembering it and and loving yourself enough, loving yourself enough yeah. that you have empathy for your own need. Yeah. I just really want something that isn't keeping me inside this box that I'm stuck in right now. Yeah. If getting out of that box is having some chips or ice cream, then and, and that's your only choice right now, then go ahead. But but understand that you can stay on your path and have follow through if you have what we call an, a portion. Yeah. And that means have your bowl, get some really pretty bowl, make a bowl, do something <laughs> that makes this moment feel special to you, yeah. that you are nurturing yourself and, and, and that you are deserving. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not only deserving of this moment, of luxury, but yeah. you are deserving of the end point. Yeah. You are deserving of that time in the future because it will come, yeah. but it doesn't come without work. What do we, you don't become Megan Rapino yeah. by sitting in front of the tube yeah. when someone said to you, you're not cut out for soccer. Yeah. Um, and that story of all those young women in that, on that team is so important to listen to half of them as young girls were denied the a spot on the team because they were told they would never be very good at soccer. Mm. And instead of going home and eating a bag of chips, they went home and they, they put in 10,000 hours of practice to yeah. show everybody that yeah. they could do it. Yeah. Finding that maybe none of, maybe none of us are going to be elite but we can be elite in our elite in the world, but we can be elite for ourselves. Yeah, no, I love that. Thank you so much. That is so good. And that's kind of, that's kind of the, the basis of this podcast too. I can do. And cause I have a defibrillator, I have an enlarged heart, I've got a genetic condition. And so every day and no matter what obstacles we find, and I like Ryan Holiday's book, the obstacle is the way. We get to decide. <laughs> it's a great book. It's so it's so encouraging. But we get to decide how are we going to respond to these difficult moments. So, uh, and that can make all the difference because um, 
it can be easy just to turn to food. And I can't remember who said it, but you know, food is like your best friend. Uh, food's always there for us. Food won't talk back. It gives us comfort for a short amount of time, but you know, it also can bring a lot of pain attached to it as well. So that's a uh, great thoughts. Uh, I know we only have a few more minutes. I wanted to ask you just a few more questions if I can, and we could go pretty fast with this. Okay. Uh, we can call it rapid fire. Um, okay. Because your book, I want to encourage everybody, you have to buy this book, The New Power Eating, More Muscle, More Energy, Less Fat. Everything is in this book. So a lot of, some of the questions, it's already in the book. So to get even more details, uh, question number one, apple cider vinegar. There's so much stuff out there. Is there any good to it at all? Should I, Should we use it? Does it help lower glucose levels, acid reflux? What are your thoughts? You know, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That's all I need to hear. You know, uh, <laughs> the we, there are, I guess what I want to expand just a tiny bit is there yeah. are so many things that do a whole lot for those issues that's some very narrow, maybe, who knows, maybe it worked for a few people. A bunch of people selling it to you is not necessarily meaningful um, because it's passed down virally. doesn't mean that it works. And so follow the recommendations that we know have profound differences. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, egg yolks. Should we consume them or? Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> so the poor, the poor egg yolk. Uh, choline, uh, a major B vitamin, half the, the most abundant neurotransmitter in the body. Acetylcholine is found in most abundance of all foods in our diet in an egg yolk. Uh, most of us are not big tofu eaters. Uh, that's the other place where you would find it, soy lecithin. Uh, you can supplement with it, but there's a lot of really good stuff in egg yolks. And there has never been a study that showed an egg yolk a day raised cholesterol levels. Um, in fact, uh, it, the studies are now in a healthy person, one to three egg yolks a day don't seem to do much of anything. It also, of course, depends on the rest of your diet. But an egg yolk a day can make a big difference. It is very healthy. Don't start throwing the whites down the, <laughs> down the drain. Eat the whole egg. Eat the whole egg. All right, very good. What about uh, coenzyme Q10? So co coenzyme Q10 is very interesting. There is some marvelous research on patients with heart disease, including it um, as a, it, it, it assists with energy metabolism within the cell and in patients with heart disease, it is being used as part of a cocktail uh, of supplementation and, and, and pharmaceutical support very effectively. That does not mean that in a person who does not have heart disease, it's going to do the same thing or make you super well. Yeah. Um, we like people to get as much of their nutrition from food as possible, and so consuming foods that are abundant in coenzyme Q10 is a good start. But the, um, the supplementation, it, we're seeing some maybe positive results in athletes. It's got, the, the results aren't clear yet. And so it's not something that I recommend across the board. Although there are times when we try it, and some people may notice a difference, but there's nothing that I can say to you 
100% use coenzyme Q10 unless it's from your cardiologist. Gotcha. Now, I can answer the next question, but I want to hear it from you. And I, there's a lot in your book. Vitamin D. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, so this is one where a whole lot of the, the medical world got it right for a while and have gone in the wrong direction. Yes. Vitamin D is a hormone. It is actually not a vitamin. It was misnamed um, before we completely understood its function in the body. Um, our levels um, should be, my goal is a minimum of, of 50 units uh, in the way that we measure in the bloodstream. Um, vitamin D can be lower if we only look at it as a vitamin. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, 50 units in, the, in, your, in, in your serum test, your vitamin D serum test. Okay. Um, uh, intakes can be lower and serum levels can be lower if we're only looking at bone health. But the minute we, and, and it is absolutely critical for bone health. If we start to look wider and broader at multiple diseases, um, then it's clear that we need more vitamin D and our levels need to be higher. So our most abundant source is sunshine. And, and we know that you can do 10 to 15 minutes of exposure of sort of arms, chest, face, and, and legs uh, daily, and you get a, a, an abundant dose of vitamin D. If you are living any further north than Atlanta, um, that only works May to September. <laughs> and then <laughs> the sun is at the wrong angle for our bodies to, for our skin to absorb the UV rays at, at the angle required to manufacture vitamin D in our skin. So then you need to supplement and typical supplementation ideally is based on knowing blood levels and having a vitamin D test, okay. um, but fairly safe is 1,000 to 2,000 international units uh, or 25 to 50 milligrams a day. Those are, uh, those are equivalent, uh, and, and that is a fairly safe supplementation. Some people will need far more. Uh, it also depends on your diet. Dairy uh, fortified milk and fortified foods, uh, egg yolk, uh, fatty fish like salmon, those are all good sources, but we do not absorb vitamin D that well mm. from our gut. We are built to make it in our skin. And so, but we can't have an abundance of skin exposure because we get skin cancer. Mm. So, you know, we're living in places with skin tones that, that don't protect us. Yeah. Um, in fact, People of color are at higher risk because you are protected from overexposure to the sun. And so you don't make vitamin D in the same um, capacity as a Caucasian, but we also have no protection. You have some protection, but not certainly not complete protection from overexposure and, and burning and, and um, uh, cancer. So, so wearing sun protection is very important, but if you have sunscreen on, you can't make vitamin D. So it's this brief 15 minute exposure that seems to be safe on all levels. Yeah, very good. Thank you so much for that. Um, we started with uh, Vietnam and I think that'd be a great place to end. 
tell us uh, how can how can people in general help? Uh, is there a way to donate? How how can others assist? What's going on? Oh my, that would be doing? amazing. Well, so first of all, um, probably easiest is you can read about it uh, at it's meat uh, meat. I think it's meat. The, the website is meet-international.org. Okay. You can contact me uh, either through my website, which is drskleiner.com, D-R-S-K-L-E-I-N-E-R.com, or email me, Susan, at drskleiner.com. And that would be the way it would be through me. I'm the nutrition team leader. And if you want to sort of line item the, the donation to the nutrition team, we can kind of do that together, but it wouldn't, you wouldn't be sending, ever sending me the money. And it is a 401c3 or something, whatever those are. Yeah. It is a tax deduction. <laughs> it is considered a donation. And so, oh my goodness, or you can, it doesn't have to come to the nutrition team. There's multiple areas. You can learn about it by going onto the website okay. and, um, and that would just be unbelievable because all, every single one of us pays our own way um, and does this on our on our own there are a few physicians from the University of Washington who are funded through grant funding for travel but most of us are are paying our own way and we could do so much there um, to create research which would for for the Vietnamese folks there we wouldn't be doing it we would be helping to guide them um, for what they need. They tell us what they need. We don't tell them. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, I could talk to you for about four hours, <laughs> four hours, but thank you so much, Dr. Sue, for, for being with us today and, uh, hoping, hope everything goes well with you and the family. Oh, um, and my prayers and wishes to everyone out there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Kleiner. I certainly had a great time being able to talk to her and to learn so much from her as well. Be sure to pick up her book, The New Power Eating. I know that that will be a great resource for you for many years to come. Be sure to also check out my website, benjaminlee.blog, where you can find all of my podcasts and, of course, blogs and books. I hope and pray that all is well with you. Take care and God bless. And remember, I can do and so can you.